You're listening to Conversations on Strategy. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Mitchell Klingenberg, author of Americans and the Dragon, Lessons in Coalition Warfighting from the Boxer Uprising, which was published by the U.S. Army War College Press. Klingenberg is a faculty member at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. He holds a Ph.D. in history from Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks for joining me today, Mitchell. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. What inspired you to write Americans and the Dragon? I joined the faculty of the U.S. Army War College in February of 2020, right before COVID, and I was the inaugural postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Military Strategy Planning and Operations at that time. Part of my work for the department was to develop curriculum in addition to teaching duties. In collaboration with my department chairman and a couple colleagues, I was more or less tasked with developing a case for DIMSPO's pretty extensive case studies file. Colonel Witten was keen on having a case that emphasized some aspect of multinational operations and also a case that emphasized jointness or joint warfighting. A third layer was that I think a helpful case would look at operations below the threshold of high-intensity war, which is to say armed conflict, but not widespread or near-total war. As I was thinking and talking with some friends and colleagues, I was encouraged to take a look at the China campaign of 1900, about which there's a comparatively scant or underdeveloped literature, I think. Dave Silby has a nice book on it, and Emily Abdow, a writer over at Naval History and Heritage Command, has written a similar case on the Boxer War but from a maritime and naval perspective. I was really drawn to this campaign because there's really nothing quite like it. It occurs at a unique moment in American national development, and I wanted to pursue this case. So it was really from the encouragement of my chairman, now retired Colonel Winton, and friends in the department who helped inspire me to pursue this project. Give us some context, please. What was going on in the world leading up to the Boxer Uprising? I think there are two principal dynamics or forces at work in China in this era, which are really critical for understanding how all of this goes down. One is that China is a dynastic kingdom full of diverse provinces with a very large population, but it's decidedly anti-modern by 1900 and for a couple of reasons. The other dynamic is that China doesn't really have the military capability or power to deter would-be aggressor states or Western powers from intervening in its borders. There's a story there. Britain has fought two wars against China in the Qing dynasty, which ruled from 1644 to around 1912. The most famous of these wars is the Opium War which happens in the later 1840s, and then the Arrow War, which is more or less contemporaneous with the American Civil War in China. The long and short of it is that those wars really expose the vulnerability of China to Western influence. In 1844, envoys from the President of the United States, John Tyler, basically secure favorable trade negotiations, trade rights with China. This was called the most favored nation status in the Chinese lexicon. And this becomes foundational to what would develop later as the U.S. open door policy in 1900. You have this kind of Anglo-American dabbling, and in the case of the Brits, full-scale military intervention in China, which doesn't result in extensive territorial gains from a British or American perspective. But the French and the Japanese have different designs, and they will fight wars against China in the latter part of the 19th century, the Sino-French War, for instance, and then the first Sino-Japanese War. 
These result in pretty significant territorial gains for the French, present-day Vietnam, for instance, and also the Japanese who are going to seize control of the Lai Tong Peninsula. They will ultimately relinquish that, but an important precedent had been set, which is that foreign powers are keenly interested in China for a whole host of reasons. Another thing that's happening that's very significant here in this storyline is that China has undergone 14 very brutal years of internal strife in the notorious Taiping Rebellion, which happened from 1850 to 1864. That was very influential and resulted in devastating losses for China. This event would be the most bloody conflict until the Second World War in terms of fatalities and casualties. This results in very significant demographic problems for China, to say nothing of the human cost and the bloodshed. There's a lot going on in the world, to put it mildly, and a result of this foreign interference in Chinese affairs by the end of the 19th century is a lot of increased commercial, economic, and religious activity. The United States, Britain, Germany, Russia, Japan, they have keen interest in grasping and consolidating control over deposits of coal and iron in China. All of this results in a real preoccupation with a ancient kingdom that is more or less exotic to Western observers, about which they know comparatively little. But there's nothing to stop them, really, by 1900 from trying to exert their influence in China. Who were the boxers? They originate in what is known as the Shantung province. They were a secret society. They were a paramilitary organization, a militia. They were known in the contemporary parlance as the Society of Righteous and Harmonious Fists. They consolidate power because of their intense anti-foreigner bent. They are able to associate blame for recent crop failures in China and economic hardship and starvation and food shortages on Westerners, and in particular on Western missionaries from the United States and Britain in particular, who are active in this part of the world at this time. Religious evangelization has a long history. I think the first missionaries in China are probably the Italians in the 16th century. But nevertheless, after the Protestant Reformation and the Great Awakenings in the United States and the Anglo world, religious missionaries are very active in China. Missionaries come with merchants and deeply unsettle the local populace. At the time, not many Chinese are interested in Western religious forms. The population of China in 1900 was north of 300 million persons. The most liberal and expansive estimates are that in that year, about 1 million Chinese were Christians, both Catholic and Protestant, which amounts basically to 0.3% of the total population. This was perceived as a real threat by Chinese persons and by boxers who used missionary activity and increased Western business ventures as an opportune moment to strike at Westerners. The boxers basically are able to organize a multi-province level resistance to Western incursion. And in the spring and summer of 1900, they begin to target fairly indiscriminately Westerners in important commercial centers and in Peking, present-day Beijing, and Tianjin, or Tianjin today. This prompts what is effectively a humanitarian crisis. 
The boxers, in short, are this very obscure and inscrutable, I think is the word I use in the monograph, mysterious, hidden. They have a unique ability to blend into local populations, and Westerners can't really tell boxers from ordinary Chinese persons who wouldn't wish them harm. So they're a hybrid threat to Westerners. And what's unique about them is they draw on this very ancient Confucian mysticism, which they view as a source of their military power. And in fact, in their own time, they viewed as a source of their invulnerability. Contemporaneous accounts and historians since have taken note of this and have emphasized how it was that boxers believed that by swallowing certain charms or by reciting certain chants or by practicing certain Confucian rites, they could actually become invincible to Western weapons, which were more advanced than their own in most cases. In 1900, the Qing dynasty was relatively unstable. We tend today to regard China as this monolith, and I think that's a result of the communist consolidation of power, and that's very much a 20th century phenomenon. But of course, in 1900, China bears some semblance to the United States in that it's diverse. It has geographical diversity and cultural diversity within its provinces. And the Qing dynasty simply is not strong enough in 1900 under the Empress Dowager to consolidate these diverse provinces. The Chinese military is numerically substantial. Some estimates were that Imperial China could muster some 200,000 men in arms in 1900. But nevertheless, the Qing dynasty really can't compel or coerce various provinces to do its will. The boxers become a very important pawn for the Manchu court and rulers in Peking. And the boxers are a way that the regime essentially tries to save itself by adopting a decidedly anti-Western and anti-foreign posture. The boxers are this unique group who have very, in some ways, obscure origins and who defy simple categorization, but they become very politically useful for ruling elites in China in 1900. And they try to latch onto the boxers and this anti-foreign sentiment in an attempt to A, expel all Westerners, and then B, consolidate a weakening political base for themselves. Tell us about the military operations from Teku to Tianjin. The basic problem for coalition forces in June of 1900 was how do you get to your people in Beijing, basically under siege in this legation quarter? The boxers have besieged Peking or Beijing, and they are targeting missionaries and diplomats of the United States, of Britain, of France, of other nations. The problem is largely geographical. From a military perspective, the problem is how do you project power from a coast into the interior of a country among a people who are largely hostile to you being there and do that in a timely way and do that to save persons from literally losing their heads. Missionaries were being decapitated and merchants were also being murdered in very gruesome ways. The initial military operations were really essential because the Teku forts were a string of forts that basically guarded water access to the interior, the Peho River. And this was to be an important artery of supply for the land operation, the overland aspect of the campaign, both to Tianjin and then ultimately farther on along the main avenue of approach to Peking. The Teku forts were really this important, if we were to use kind of the language of current army doctrine, or if we were to put it in kind of a Jominian lexicon, these are decisive points, the capture of which make it important and enable you to continue on and to extend your operational reach. So the Teku forts are really critical. 
the Americans and the British and other coalition partners need to capture these to prevent boxers and imperial forces from harassing their lines of communications. But there's kind of a catch because at this stage, China and its regime are not at war with Western powers. And the United States is certainly not interested in declaring war against China. And neither are the other coalition partners, maybe with the exception of Russia and Japan. What happens is the naval commanders in the theater in the second week of June basically come together and demand the surrender of these forts, which will enable the Americans and the other allies and partners to unload assets on the coast and from there move on to Tientsin. And of course, the garrisons refuse to surrender. They're garrisoned by imperial forces. The naval commanders accept a pretty significant amount of strategic and political risk in doing this. And they demand the surrender of these garrisons. And the effect of that is the Empress Dowager and her court declare war on the Western powers. So you have what begins as a hybrid domestic problem, the boxers, harassing your people. And this results in a humanitarian crisis. But to get to those people, you have to target state assets. And the Americans and the British do this reluctantly. The Germans, and again, the Japanese and the Russians are probably a little more eager to do this. But the result of it is a declaration of war. And so the military operations from the forts to Tianjin will find the coalition forces fighting not just boxers, but whatever imperial forces the regime can muster. And that's pretty tough going. Tianjin is besieged, not unlike Peking, and the coalition will take some time to organize its ground forces and move overland and open up Tianjin and establish it as an advanced base of operations for the final march on Peking. This is a pretty intense fight for the Americans, especially. The 9th and 14th Infantry Regiments will ultimately have men on the ground here, but this fight is particularly hard on the 9th Infantry Regiment. There are pretty extensive firefights that coalition forces have to engage in in order to liberate Tianjin. That's the general overview of the military situation from the coast and the Teku forts, which basically guard both the overland approach to Tianjin and Peking and also essential waterways, the Peho in particular, to Peking. Walk us through the China Relief Expedition. Once coalition forces are able to establish an advanced base of supply and consolidate gains at Tianjin, the next problem becomes, okay, how do we get from Tianjin to Peking? And this, of course, is the seat of Chinese imperial power, and it's also where the threat to American personnel is most acute. This is where you have this interesting combined multinational overland march in which the Americans can muster the better part of two regiments of infantry, and they have some cavalry, though not much, and basically a battery of artillery. The Americans essentially are the lightest force in this multinational contingent. And as a result, they are often relegated to the last place in the order of march. It's a march that takes several days to accomplish and is met with light to moderate resistance along very small villages on the way. It's also a notorious march in the history of the U.S. Army because of the environment and the very difficult conditions. If you look at after-action reports, for instance, from the company level all the way up to regiment and even to Chaffee himself, had extensive experience, by the way, fighting Native American Indians in the Southwest, Apache, Comanche, who knew what a hot and arid and very unforgivable climate was. The common theme in the AARs for this march is it was hot. 
and the men were falling out very frequently and you could not find water easily. And the men often had to drink out of ponds and the peho, which was littered with the bodies of boxers and probably Chinese innocents too. The Russians and the Japanese were notoriously brutal on this march from Tientsin to Peking. The Japanese, for their part, had what we would regard as the most complete or whole all arms or combined arms force on the ground. They were about 10,000 strong. In the context of the American Civil War, which was the last great war that anyone then serving in the U.S. Army would have remembered as a frame of reference with which to compare their experience, 10,000 men is a core echelon formation. And the Japanese have that, and they have good cavalry, they have good intelligence, and they have strong artillery and a pretty robust sustainment piece, and their infantry are very effective at house-to-house fighting. So they often take the lead in this march from Tientsin to Peking, and the result of that and the very intense racial and ethnic animosity that existed between the Chinese and the Japanese resulted in a lot of atrocities. And you saw this too with the Russians. They were notoriously brutal. And the Americans, because they occupy, in almost every case, the last position in this order of march, it's harder for them to get water. They can't live off the country very effectively. It's hard, especially on their equines and their horses who are trying to pull their overland sustainment, their food stores and their munitions. And as a result, the farther they get from Tientsin, the more Chaffee and his staff realize that they need to start requisitioning local equines and camels because the American horses simply couldn't eat or drink. And when they're pulling your guns, your three-inch guns, which were common in this era, breech loaders, that mattered. Logistics were very pivotal for this campaign. The coalition force reaches Peking in August, and the Russians try to steal a march on everyone and get into the city first. It's an informal coalition. These are not formal allies working toward a common objective and a common unified end state. They all have something different they're trying to get and leverage out of this campaign. And the Russians are very crafty. They steal a march on the Japanese and the Americans and everyone else in the column and try to enter the city first. And how the Americans enter the city is perhaps a different conversation, but that produced several vignettes of heroism and also lore that still remain subjects of great interest in the U.S. Army. What lessons can military leaders learn from the Boxer Uprising? I think there are several. And there's a tendency to think that because a campaign is old and looks very simple and looks very antiquated, it doesn't have much to teach. I look at the campaign in China in 1900, and I basically take away three lessons. The first is that sea power matters. We live in a world largely today in which we take for granted that the United States can go anywhere and do anything it wants and project power on a win. This is not, of course, a law of nature. It's not a scientific law like gravity or force as the product of mass and acceleration. It's the result of decades of serious naval policy and force structure tailored to execute that policy. And we owe that debt really to Theodore Roosevelt from back in the days when he worked in the Navy Department, as it was then known. Roosevelt helps to create this navy that by the time of the Spanish-American War is ready to defeat an old European power in Spain, both in Cuba and in the Philippines. And with that navy, the United States can project power over hemispheric distances, literally over horizons, and it can move through important sea lanes and secure important lines of maritime communications. Everyone who participated in the China campaign, who was actually thinking about what the campaign meant from an American perspective, noticed this. 
it was Crozier who was Chaffee's chief ordnance officer, a member of his staff, who said, without the Philippines and without Nagasaki and Japan, where we could coal our vessels and outfit our ships and where we could bring our wounded, this campaign would not have been successful. We could not have rendered effective aid in a contingency operation to save our people, like the Germans who struggled in this respect. Today, I think one of the lessons is that we, in a grand strategic or a strategic sense, and even in the realm of policy, sea power is a choice and it's a privilege. It's a luxury, not a fact or a law of nature. And we have to guard that very jealously. It seems almost incredible or silly to think that the entire continental United States could be susceptible to foreign interference that there could be a handful of competitor states or pacing threats or actors who would converge on our shores and try to carve up our interior. But that happened to China in the 19th century. Great power status is not automatic. And of course, there would have to be a string of very serious and very disadvantageous events that would make us vulnerable in that kind of way. And heaven forbid that would ever come to pass. But the point remains that we were able to land a coalition force on China's shores uncontested, and our logistics were not contested. And that's something that we need to keep in mind. And so I think actually looking at this entire campaign from the perspective of China is somewhat instructive. Of course, the usual caveats apply, and comparisons always have their limits. I think another lesson is that interoperability with allies and partners is nice, and we should look to do that in every possible way. It's important that we fight alongside allies and partners. But it's also important to cultivate the capability, if necessary, to do the hard work alone. The Americans who fought alongside the Japanese and the Russians in particular and the British, these were Imperial British forces, forces from India, noticed that these nations and their ground forces had more experience campaigning and they had more diverse experiences than the American forces did. So we were able to draw on that. We were able to augment their strengths and work with them. But if you read, again, the journals of staff officers who were in China, they were taking very detailed notes about what the British could do and how they hauled their transport and what their medical wagons looked like and how they supplied troops on the firing line. And they did the same thing for the Japanese. This was very clearly a learning experience for the U.S. Army and for the Navy. We were able to work with our allies and partners, which is great, but I think to a T, if you could ask the participants who fought in that campaign, were we better because we were dependent on our allies and partners or were we compromised? I think to a T, they would say the latter. We couldn't quite punch above our weight in all respects but one, which was the sustainment piece. And I've written on this elsewhere. I was able to take a chapter, basically of the case, and develop a separate project from the monograph on the sustainment aspect of the campaign. The Americans were very well supplied. We were able to move supplies to our troops in the theater and on this march to Peking. Not perfectly, in some cases not even well, but we were able to do it. And when you consider the distances involved with the technology then available, this was a pretty remarkable feat. As the United States would experience in World War I, sustainment was still hard. We weren't able to supply the AEF perfectly in France, but we did it just well enough. So the logistics matter. But that ties in again to the first point, which is how can you project power on the sea? Listeners, if you do want to get into the details, I highly recommend you download the monograph. You'll find it at press.armywarcollege.edu slash monographs slash 961. Mitchell, thank you for making time to speak with me today. It was good to chat with you again. Thanks for having me on. It was great. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, you can find us on any major podcast platform. 